Hi, Pathway family, and welcome to church. It's so fun to get to be with you today, and I can't wait to start our new series called Witness. Now, we've been spending some time talking about how we interact with ourselves, how we interact with each other as a church body, and now we want to spend a few weeks talking about how we interact with the world around us and how we are witnesses. And really, the Bible talks about us being the ambassadors of Christ. We're the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ here on this world. And so we wanna talk about how we interact with and witness to the world. And so we're gonna to jump today right into the first defining moment of Christianity really, and that is the gospel. And so we're gonna talk about the gospel being defined. And so we're gonna start in Romans chapter 10. So if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, and we're just gonna start in verse one. And it says this, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness is everyone to, to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does the, those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have given us a path to salvation. You've given us a way that we can com communicate and connect to you in, in the way that you have designed from the very beginning. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you, God, that you're willing to send your son to die on a cross for us. We ask that today your words would come forth and that, that Andrew would step out of the way and that nothing I have to say would take over, but that you would be prevalent in our communication, in our, in our message today. Lord, we thank you so much and we praise your name. Amen. So many of us know this passage. Many of us have read through this passage before, and we've maybe even taken a few of our friends or family members through this passage in hopes of getting them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to talk about this whole gospel idea, because gospel is a word that we, in, in the church world anyway, we throw it around frequently. We hear it frequently. It's used in reference to music. It's, using, it's used in reference to meetings, even ministers. Uh, but often we forget, or if we're honest, we don't even know what we mean when we say gospel. And so it's... It is heartbreaking to me sometimes when I'll ask people, 
hey, give me the gospel, or what is the gospel? And they'll look at me and they'll maybe mumble a couple of verses or they'll kind of shuffle through Jesus Christ. They may even talk about his death, resurrection, and forgiveness of sins, but there's hardly ever conviction and confidence in their words, in what they're saying. They're, They're very thrown off by the question. And so we need to get back to a right understanding of the, of the word so that we can be witnesses of this gospel that we have been given. And so what exactly is the gospel? That's, that's going to be our primary focus today is talking about what the gospel actually is. So I always like to start with the origins of the word and the Greek word for gospel is evangelion and evangelion, uh, Sounds very familiar probably to you, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it has its origins in the ancient soap trade industry. (laughs) I know that's kind of strange, uh, but you guys will know why in a second. Uh, But as the merchants would come to the town with their loads of soap, they would walk around the town shouting out, Good news! Or Evangelion. Uh, And uh, it's easy to understand why that would be good news in a culture where bathing was infrequent, uh, showers were non-existent, and, and so soap showing up to a town would be quite good news for some people. Uh, but people called these merchants evangel- evangelists. This word has obviously stuck around in the, in the church because it stuck to those people who brought the good news to people, letting them know that they could be cleansed from the stench of their sin. They could be use the, the soap of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's not the word I want to use, but, but they could use this to cleanse their sins. He, he, his blood cleanses our sins. And so they would go around proclaiming good news. We have good news. But what is the message of that good news? What is the the soap that can cleanse a man of his sins? We see it very clearly in verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 10 as we read through them. And we're going to be spending time in these verses. But first, I think we need to go back and take a look at the first part of the chapter to understand and to be clear on the whole context of what is being talked about here. In chapter 10 of Romans, Paul is speaking to the people in Rome about his desire for Israel to be saved. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the Jews, is that they may be saved. His desire is to see his his fellow brothers, because remember, Paul was originally a Jew. His, His brothers and sisters come to faith and come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. He knew that their zeal, the zeal of the religious Pharisees in the Jewish world was was great because he was one of them. And not only that, if you look at Philippians 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, he says even, and let me just read this to you. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And that's in reference to himself. He's talking about, I was the most zealous one of them all. And so he knows that they are a zealous people, that they are zealous for God. Their zeal, however, was sincere, yes, but it was not based on knowledge. And the truth is, is you can work yourself to death for a worthy cause or for a sincere cause cause. But without knowledge of, without the knowledge of God, 
it's all for nothing. And so we don't want to be a people that is zealous without knowledge. And I, I, I do feel like personally, we, we have a lot of that zealous faith. We have that desire to proclaim God and to minister to people, but we don't have the knowledge to go along with that. The, the Jews were passionate about one thing in their zeal, and that was the pursuit to, quote, establish their own righteousness. And we see that in verse 3 when he says them being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have failed to submit to the, to the righteousness of God. Look, the, the natural tendency when we try to establish our own righteousness is to get very legalistic on how we view others' faith. We look at how they're doing things. We look at how we would never be that kind of person and we would, we would never do, do that kind of faith or, or we would only do that kind of faith. And we, we start getting zealous towards other people and less towards the knowledge of God. And, and, and as A.W. Tozer has written a, a whole book called The Knowledge of the Holy, we, we should be pursuing and zealous of the knowledge of the holy, meaning uh, Jesus Christ. John Corson says this, he says, you can be sincere in your crusading, your critiquing, your sin sniffing of, of your fault finding, but you'll be sincerely wrong. Guys, we are often sincerely wrong in how we are pursuing our zealous Christianity, our zealous faith, because oftentimes our, our zeal for maybe even the things of God can become legalistic and judgmental of others. And we need to be careful with that because that is not the true heart of sharing the gospel. We need to share the gospel with confidence, yes, but not be insulting. We need to have our convictions, of course, but not impose those convictions on other people that A, may be not even saved, and B, may not be mature, may not have the same kinds of convictions. We need to be careful that we are not being legalistic in how we present our zeal for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ establishes righteousness for us now and no longer according to the old covenant or the sacrificial system, the system that we find in Leviticus, the system that we find in the Old Testament where they, they would slaughter the animals on the altar for the covering of sins. Jesus took care of that. He, does, he took care of the sacrificial system. The law has been ended for everyone who believes. And verse 4 confirms that. And he says in verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is no more old system for us as believers in Jesus Christ because he is the sacrifice that has taken care of that sin. He has washed it away completely. We no longer are subject to having to sacrifice animals on the altar before the throne. The veil when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, the veil was ripped. And, and when I say the veil was ripped or torn in two, the veil was between the Holy of Holies and the outer court. And so you could go and minister, the priests could minister out here and do all of the, some of the sacrificial stuff. But on the day of atonement, one day a year, the high priest, just the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies and offer up the sacrifice for the people. Now, there was a whole process behind that, and we don't have a ton of time to get into that, but just know the high priest had to sacrifice for himself before he went into the Holy of Holies. He had to actually make an offering to cleanse his own sins before he went into the Holy of Holies, and he would wear a chain around his ankle, and it actually has 
had some bells on it. So he'd be jangling around in the Holy of Holies. And if, if the people outside of the veil heard that jangle stop, if they heard the bells stop, they knew that, that his sacrifice that he had made for, made for his own sins, the, the offering up of whatever it may be, was not done correctly. And he had entered into the Holy of Holies with sin in his heart still, or not covered at least, and God had struck him dead. And they tied that chain and kept it outside so that they could pull his dead body out of the Holy of Holies because they couldn't, if you went in to go get his body, you would drop dead. And so there was this whole process of him going into the Holy of Holies, only him, one day a year. That was all it was meant for. Now, when Jesus died, that veil was torn. And now the Holy of Holies is open to us all every day. Every moment of our lives is open to go and, and seek out God the Father. We can go to him and we can make our supplications known and we can have the forgiveness of sins. And not only the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins. So the complete washing of sins. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to, we're going to go a little bit deeper into this idea of we, we know that we are to believe in Jesus or believe in the gospel. But what is that? What do we believe in? And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives it a little bit closer. And he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, that there's that word evangelion, which I preach to you, the good news, which also you received and in which you stand by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And we'll talk about what he means by that in a minute. For I delivered you, uh, I, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. And so here's this idea of the gospel. Paul sums up the gospel in these few verses right here. First in verse 3, we see that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is called substitutionary uh, atonement. So this is, it means that he died in our place. The the payment, the cost, the penalty of sin is death. Now, Jesus Christ came in and substituted himself, substituted himself for our uh, payment. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this, it says, the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of our sins, everyone from past, present, and future were laid on Jesus Christ and he died for all of them. Then in verse 4, so we have, we have Christ died for our sins according to the scripture first. Second, we have in verse 4, the first part of verse 4, that he was buried. He was truly dead for three days and was put into a tomb. Isaiah 53, 9 prophesied that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. A, a rich man's tomb was donated to Jesus, borrowed for three days, if you want to say it that way. But this is a prophecy that came true, and there's many different kinds of ideas of did Jesus swoon at the cross? Did he pass out at the cross? Did someone replace Jesus, and it wasn't actually Jesus on the cross, and he came back later? Um, did the disciples hide his body and, and say, yeah, he rose from the dead? There's all sorts of different 
conspiracy theories about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, but the Bible says that he went into the tomb and came out three days later. And it prophesied that in Isaiah 53. And then we have, so we have now, we have the first part, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, Isaiah 53, 6. And then that he was buried, and this is also according to the scriptures, Isaiah 53, 9. And now finally we have that, that he rose again on the third day and was seen by many witnesses. And we have that in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. We see that he, he didn't just die and rise again and, and we just trust in that. No, he was seen by many witnesses. He was seen by many different people that came and, and are able to attest to the truth of him coming back. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you want to, uh, to Acts chapter 1. And verse 3 says this, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, to whom he also suffering many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Infallible proofs. These are not up for debate. He was there and they were with him and they were talking to him and it wasn't just a fake person. It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't a different Jesus or a different person. This was Jesus Christ himself in the flesh, resurrected from the dead, talking to these people, showing himself to, I mean, we, there are, there are estimates, there are numbers, but there are upwards of some people say a thousand, some people say more than that. Some say even 3000 that Jesus actually showed himself to. And we get to have that as proof that he, he not only rose again, but as Paul says, most of these people at, at the writing of first Corinthians were still alive to this day. And you could go talk to these people who actually had firsthand account knowledge of Jesus Christ having been resurrected. And so we have the gospel in a nutshell here. Those three points, Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. Jesus fulfilled the purposes of the sacrificial system through his death and resurrection. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've used some big words, but propitiation is a fancy word for replacement. And you can find that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. We're not going to go there right now, but you can find it. Jesus Christ is that payment for our sins. He is the tetelestai, the thing that we I've talked about before here, where, where he is paid in full. He has paid our debt in full for us. The old covenant sacrifice animals, sacrificial animals and sacrificing animals was an imperfect system. It could only cover our sins and it had to be done every year and only one guy could do it. Now, only one guy can do it still, but it's Jesus Christ who covers, not just covers all of our sins. I want to be careful in the word usage there because he does more than that. He removes, he washes them away. It's, it's like this. If you took a plate and you had a plate and you wrote down all of your sins that you've ever committed or ever will commit on this plate. For some of us, that has to be a really big plate. And you wrote all of your sins on this plate. And in the old system, what happened is God would, the, the priest would cover that plate with the blood of the animal so that God could, if, if you want to picture it this way, he could no longer read those sins. And it's like, yeah, I can't see them because of the blood. Okay. Now, that was great, but eventually the blood got wiped off and the sins were still there. Now, Jesus Christ comes along. He dies on the cross, sheds his blood. And, and that same plate, when the blood covers that plate, you can wipe all that blood off if you want to. There's no sins. There is no more sins there. It's not that they're just covered. They are completely wiped from the record book. 
And then on top of that, it's like God takes that plate and chucks it out of the window. And that is that he won't remember our sins as far as the east is from the west is how he's how far he has removed his thoughts from our sins when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal savior. So Jesus' blood does away with our sins and his resurrection from the dead shows the, his power over the grave to raise us up to the eternal life with him. Now, again, this is key. His resurrection is key. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read it here. He goes on to talk about the importance of that resurrection. In verse 12, if you read, read on with me of chapter 15, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this time starting in verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This was a a problem for the Corinthian churches that they were, there were people that were saying, look, there's no such thing as the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And this is key. Then also Christ has perished. Oh, sorry. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then he says this in in verse 19. If in this uh, life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Meaning that if Christ didn't die, if if all of this, if, if... Everything in our faith hinges upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just the death, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. Paul says if if we're believing in that resurrection, but it doesn't exist, then we should be pitied above all men because we have hope where there is no hope to be found. And and that is a sad commentary. Now, Paul is saying, he's, he's asking rhetorical questions. He's saying, look, this is not the case. Death and resurrection or the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real thing and it really happened. So we obviously have hope. We obviously have that that hope in Jesus Christ. And so there is that idea that, guys, we have Jesus Christ. We have been, he he died and he rose again. And if he didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. And again, as Paul said, we above all men should be the most pitiable because we don't have hope especially the hope that we think we have. Now, Jesus Christ did raise from the dead. We do have that confidence through not just the scripture, but again, as in Acts says, we have that infallible proof that he came and he mingled among his disciples and apostles. So let's go back really quickly to Romans chapter 10. Now that we've kind of looked and seen what the gospel is, those those three key, key things that he died, he was buried, and he resurrected. So back in Romans 10, the law has been ended because Christ has fulfilled its purposes. And we see that in verse 5. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does, not, who does those things shall live by them. So we have, we have Jesus Christ who has now fulfilled the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to kill an animal so that its blood could cover our sins. Now, Jesus Christ has died so that that's no longer needed. The purpose has been fulfilled. And then verses 6 and 7 deal with the idea that no man can reach Christ and pull him to our level or to in in any way, shape, or form. It gets a little uh, wordy here, but we want to work through it. So it says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven 
that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, there's, there's different movements around here in our world today, as well as when Paul was writing this, where today we have people who will sell all of their possessions, climb on top of a mountain, wear nothing but yak fur ponchos and drink tea made from the herbs of Mother Earth to try and ascend and transcend into heaven, uh, into the heavens, whatever that looks like for them, to try and pull Christ down or to try and pull the idea down anyway, because they would never call it Christ or him Christ, if that makes sense. But they, they try and reach nirvana. They try and free their mind, open their mind by ascending to the heavens or ascending these, these deep things, if you will. And, and guys, there's nobody that can do that. There's nobody who can ascend through the heavens like Jesus Christ has done. And, and, and not only that, even if you could, you're not pulling him back down. You're not taking him back to this earth. And we even see that in some of the people who have claimed nirvana, have claimed that they've reached these highest heights that you can reach. They don't continue in that because even if you did, which I doubt that they ever did, but even if you did, you wouldn't be able to hang on to it because you cannot pull that, that feeling or that thing back to earth like they are trying to do. And just like you cannot ascend the highest heights, you cannot delve to the deepest pit. It, you can... You can't dive into the deepest theological pools to try and raise Jesus up from the dead and have him be more real. We have a lot of people in our world today who study and study and study, and they, they try and get deeper and deeper. And sometimes that, that is good. Sometimes it turns into a futile effort, though, where they try and, and make sense of something. Eventually, guys, faith has to take over. We have to get to the point where, yes, we can be knowledgeable of all things. The goal in my, in my mind is to be more knowledgeable. I want to be more knowledgeable. I want to continue growing towards Jesus Christ. I want to get, continue getting to know him. But eventually, faith, my faith has to be made real. I can be 99.9999999% sure that Jesus Christ and God exist. I cannot be 100% sure, and that's where faith takes over. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because my, my faith and my knowledge go hand in hand, not separate from one another. He is real because he says he is real. He is real because this book has, has told his story. But the truth is some people float on clouds of philosophy trying to bring Christ down and others dig in studiously trying to bring Christ up. But in reality, Paul says that neither is necessary. Christ is knowable. Christ is here. Christ is with us. And we don't need to go into these convulsions of, you know, selling everything we have. While that is definitely a call that some people have, and I'm not trying to belittle that at all. What I'm saying is it is not necessary. We can know Jesus Christ through his word and through the testimony of others. And that is, that is the goal in our Christian walk, in our, in our church walk is not to just do church together. Church is great and it should be done, but the goal is to see other people coming to know him through our witness as a body of believers coming together and knowing Jesus Christ better, deeper, and with a, with a more, well, just a more deep understanding of who he is. The truth is, is that we, we 
make it complicated because we want to have more than say God has required of us. We want, we feel like it's too simple. We feel like it's too easy to just say, yeah, I, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what else do I need to do? Because we want to make rules. We want to have that structure. We, man is inclined to make things more difficult on ourselves. And so we do that with our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not known through philosophy or even through theology, truly, but through childlike simplicity. Childlike simplicity. Listen to this in verses 8 and 9. It says this of Romans chapter 10. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Boom. Done. End of story. There's no more conversation here. That's just the way it is. We, we make it complex because that is too simple. It is too childlike. We think it needs to be more complex. We've had people tell us maybe that it needs to be more complex than that. Whether it's you need to do more for your church or you need to give more to your church or you need to, you need to go feed the homeless or you need to go on a mission trip or whatever. We, we get told that you need to do these things if you're going to be a true Christian that loves the Lord. But childlike simplicity is what brings us to that place. Luke 6 verse 45 says this. It's a great place to start on why it's important that we believe in our hearts and not only in our minds or our feelings. It says this. It says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. We need to understand that our heart controls most of our feelings, emotions, direction. Our mind is great and having the head knowledge of Jesus Christ is fantastic. We should do that. But if it doesn't connect to our heart, our mind can be changed. How many of you guys have got dressed this morning and, and looked at yourself in the mirror and changed your mind? But if you have something that your heart is connected to, you're unlikely to change your heart. So we have this, this, this thing inside of us that we should have our faith resting in our heart, not just in our head. And there's a, there's a famous saying, no idea who said it, so I'm sorry that I'm quoting without reference, but it, it's something to the effect of a lot of people are going to miss out on heaven by 18 inches. And and the, the idea behind that is there's 18 inches between your, your brain and your heart for most people. And so I don't want to miss out on heaven because I only had faith in my head. I want to I be in heaven because of the faith in my heart and allow my head to follow suit. My heart is the rudder almost that, that steers where I want to study, where I want to be. If my heart is focused on sin, if I have a... a sinful heart. And Jeremiah says, all of us do. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. We, we should understand that because my heart is deceitfully wicked, I need someone or something to control that so that I don't live a deceitfully wicked life. Jesus Christ is that person who can do that. And again, this is confirmed in, in verse 10, where it says, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So the heart will lead us to righteousness 
And then that will cause our mouth to confess our salvation. You see how that works? That's our witness, is our mouth confesses the salvation that we found through our heart seeking the righteousness of God. We, we need to be careful that we understand this succession, that we understand how this all works, because if I just believe up here, then I'm missing it here. But if I believe it here, then it comes out of here. And that's so important to what we do in life. And sometimes we can feel like these verses, or specifically the, the verse 11, let's, let's read verse 11 because it's important. It says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And there are times that we can feel like that is just a blatant lie. I have been made fun of for my faith. I've been put to shame. So Paul is lying here. No, 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 guys. We need to understand that our friends and family and our people who don't know us can, can chastise us. They can make fun of us about our faith. And, and sometimes we feel ashamed for hearing that, for, for feeling that we have this faith in something that these people don't believe in, that thinks that people say very rudely doesn't exist or anything like that. But they, they don't understand that in this verse, people who think that this verse is lying, it's not that our current situation, we may not be put to shame. Isaiah 28, 16 is where he's referencing right now, where Paul is referencing. And it is not talking about our current situation. It's talking about our future presence, or sorry, our, our future situation, our future reality. And so we have this, this future to look forward to where Jesus Christ will, will honor our, our faith, by saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. While many people, even in the Christian faith, guys, will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. If we have our faith here and we allow it to confess here, then Jesus will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That means that I don't just let my faith reside in my heart. There are many people that I know personally that say, yeah, I, I got saved when I was eight years old. I said the prayer. And that's just, I feel like live and let live is my motto. And to some extent, I, I tend to agree with them in my, in my flesh because sometimes I just want to sell everything and move away. But I have to be honest in saying that that is not the life that Jesus Christ provides for us. That is not the life that he hopes for us is because we, our heart should cause us, our heart for him will cause us to speak out in his name, will cause us to be a witness for him. We will be obligated and not just obligated, but we will feel it in our soul, our very being that we must evangelize. We must share the good news. We must provide the soap. And so don't be discouraged in verse 11 when it says you won't be brought to shame, feeling in your heart, well, I am shamed. You may be shamed by men, but what can man do to you except for take your life? Where God can take your soul. And that is so key is we need to remember our position. Remember, I'm very, I'm very positional when it comes to this. Where, who am I compared to who he is? Or a better way to put it, and a more, I guess, correct way to put it is, who is he compared to who am I? Because I am nothing. I, Paul says, I am as, as filthy rags. I am nothing compared to Jesus Christ and, and his, his salvation plan. 
In truth, Christ saved or died for everyone, regardless of their race or creed. And that's where he kind of wraps up this section in, in verses 12, uh, verse 12. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. We live in a culture where people are very keyed up to say it's us versus them, or we fight against each other for whatever small reason this week, whatever flavor of the week we decide to get angry at each other. But Jesus says that salvation is provided to everyone. Everyone. There is not one person that has ever lived or will ever live on this earth that Jesus has not died for. He did not. He, he died for every single sin in the world. All of our iniquity was laid on him as, Isaiah, as we saw in Isaiah. All of it. And all we have to do in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. It is that easy. We call on the name of the Lord. And once we call on the name of the Lord, he begins to work that righteousness in our hearts where our hearts desire more of him. We start studying. We start learning. We start trying to get closer to him by reading this book by getting into his word, by spending time through prayer, by spending time in worship, whether it's corporately or individually. We do all of these things so that, so that our hearts get put on the path towards righteousness, towards his righteousness, not just a path of knowledge or not just a path of, of zealous faith where we just, as, as we talked about earlier, where we just judge others and, and try and match up to a different level of what we think a holy Christian looks like. We read his word and we see what kind of Christian he wants us to be. And then as that happens, as our heart starts to be transformed, as, as we start getting into that, that groove of Jesus Christ, then we start confessing with our mouth, not just our, to ourselves, but to those around us, our family, our friends. We, we are incapable because of how amazing God is of of not saying anything. It is impossible for us to not share the gospel. It is not impossible for us to not say, hey, I've got a bar of soap. You want to get clean? You want to stop stinking in your sin? Here, take this. Let's get clean. And so we do that. In Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, go into the world, all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. And we get to do that, guys. It is not an obligation. It is not something that we should be bummed out about or intimidated by. Because let me tell you this, many people, many Christians will say, well, I just don't know how to share my faith. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And here's, here's the simplest thing I can say is you, you know how to share your faith because you have faith. Therefore, your mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If Jesus Christ is your abundance here, then that good treasure in those verses that we just read, that, that good thing will come out of your mouth. It will come out. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, get over yourself and just start talking. No, I'm saying there, there's definitely a way to give the gospel. And we're going to be talking about that in the next few weeks. But right now, in this moment, you don't be intimidated because God has chosen you to be his mouthpiece. He has chosen you to be the one that goes into the world. He didn't say, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature as long as you have a seminary degree, or only if you've gone to Bible college, or only if you've learned the correct way to do it. No, he says, just go and preach the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, we just talked about that. I don't need to recap right now. 
We are told to go and do this because the world is dirty. It needs the soap that Jesus Christ provided on the cross. It needs the soap that can cleanse sin. Not just physical dirt on our skin, but the sin that penetrates into our soul that sends us to hell. The soap that Jesus Christ, the blood that Jesus Christ provided. I don't want to belittle his blood because it is all about the blood. The nefesh is the word in, in the Hebrew. The, the, the life. It's nefesh. That is what permeates and cleanses our soul from all sin and unrighteousness. That comes through the confession and the belief that Jesus Christ came to the earth. He lived a, as God and as man, fully God, fully man, he lived a perfect life. And that he was put on trial, convicted, put to death for crimes he did not commit so that he could become the perfect substitutionary atonement, the perfect sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and he could die on the cross to wash those sins away. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with that period. Then, three days later, he rose again to show his power over death and to promise us that he would raise us from the dead in one day. day. That is our evangelion. That is our good news. That is our shouting to the world that Jesus Christ has saved our soul. And we are, it is, there's nothing else we can be. Paul, oftentimes we read in his, in his letters, Paul, an apostle, Paul, an apostle, Paul, an apostle. And, and we lose so much in the English language. And I know that you guys already know that I believe this, but Paul is saying there that without, without Jesus Christ, I am not Paul. It's not even just without Jesus Christ, I'm not an apostle. He's saying without Jesus Christ, I'm not even Paul. I'm not even, I'm not anything. Now, he, he kind of had a cool story in that because he, he was Saul and now he's Paul. And so without Jesus Christ, he would have just stayed Saul. So there's a cool like dual meaning there. But guys, without Jesus Christ, I am not Andrew. I am just a lost sinner without Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ has made me whole. And so I have that hope of the future. I have that good news and it is my obligation to share it as wide and as far as I can. So let us not have zeal without knowledge. Let us strive to know God through intimate time with him in our week. If he's working something in you, tell someone else about it. If he's working faith in you, tell someone, share with someone, hey, you know what's really neat in my life? They're going to think that you're about to tell them that you just bought a new car or that you're buying a boat or that you're going on vacation. No, you know what's really neat in my life? Jesus Christ saved me from being so filthy, so dirty, and now I am clean. Do you want some soap? We should share with this. If he's calling you, as we've talked about in the weeks previous, if he's calling you to something, then get involved. Tell someone that you want to get involved. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Rob. Talk to anybody on staff here, whatever. Talk to somebody about wanting to get involved so that you're not just saying, yeah, I need to get involved. Do it. Act on that. Get involved. If he has saved you, even in this moment, if he has saved you, then ask other Christians. I, you know what? Even if it was 15 years ago, if he has saved you, then ask older Christians or more mature Christians to disciple you so that you can continue to grow in and towards the Lord. It is our goal 
as Christians, and I'm not, I'm not speaking as pathway or anything. I, our goal as Christians is to make disciples. And the only way that we can do that is say, hey, do you want to learn how to walk after Jesus? Do you want to learn how to walk like Jesus walked and talk like Jesus talked? And so we disciple one another. We disciple and we get closer to the Lord so that we don't just have head knowledge, but that we have heart passion, we have heart zeal, that we pursue after him in a, in a godly manner. That is the gospel. That is what we want to do. That is the gospel defined. And we're going to continue to talk about what this witness looks like. But today, in this moment, I think it's very important that we talk about the idea that we become saved so that we can now share. God works this in us. It's a system. You guys can see the system. And so we want to do that as not just a church and not just as a pastor, but as individuals together with each other. And so with that, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here today. And let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. And we ask that your presence would be with us even in this moment. Lord, even right now, I pray that you would be touching hearts, that you'd be changing lives, that you'd be changing our mentality of not just having a zeal for you without knowledge, but having a passion for your the things that are of you, the passion for righteousness through Jesus Christ, a passion for you to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our lives, and then having the outpouring to go and share that with others. Lord, we thank you more than anything for saving us, for offering that cleansing blood that washes all of our sins away. And even in this moment, Lord, I pray that that person or these people or those of us who are listening right now who just need to get back in the tub and get scrubbed up, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to do that. I pray that as we hear the gospel that we would allow it to change us. Lord, that we would not hold it close and just be selfish with it this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, God, and I just pray that you would work that in us, that our faith would be made new, and that we would see you work in us wonders, miracles, signs, so that we can see the evidence of your presence in our lives. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We praise you in your name. Amen.